Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. Good evening. This is Brian Cavanaugh, and on behalf of my co-host, Kaylee Doak, I'd like to welcome you to a special presentation of the Virtual Visiting Professor Network entitled A Midsummer Night's Stream. Tonight's episode will be a live broadcast from the UCSF campus of the podcast Plenary Session, hosted by Dr. Vinaya Prasad. Dr. Prasad's guest tonight will be Dr. Sue Yom. Many of you already know Dr. Prasad from his many publications and social media presence. On the faculty at UCSF, he practices hematology and oncology. He also has an appointment in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Dr. Prasad is the author of two excellent books that should be required reading for anyone interested in healthcare and especially anyone working in a cancer-related field. The first is Ending Medical Reversal, co-authored by Dr. Adam Sifu. And the more recent one is Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer. Many of you met Dr. Prasad a few years ago when he gave a keynote address at the Astro Annual Meeting entitled Hype, Surrogates, and Multiplicity, Three Themes of Modern Oncology We Can Do With Less Of. Dr. Prasad has no funding support from Pharma, but now that we look more closely back at that picture from his keynote address, we do see a fairly obvious product placement in it. Hmm, I wonder. Anyway, speaking of the Astro Annual Meeting, it is coming our way soon. This year's theme will be Global Oncology, Radiation Therapy in a Changing World. The meeting will be an exciting interactive online experience, and I encourage you to visit the Astro website to learn more about it and take advantage of the early bird registration rates. If you're here primarily because you're already a fan of Plenary Session, I might add that someone well-known to you will be giving a presentation in the Presidential Symposium of the Astro Meeting. Dr. Bishal Gyawali will give a well-informed medical oncology perspective on global challenges in cancer care, and I personally am especially looking forward to that one. Just one more thing before we start. Please remember that next month we're going to have a terrific presentation from Drs. Anthony Nichols and David Palma, who collaborated on the Orator trial comparing radiation therapy versus transoral robotic surgery in, in head and neck cancer. You won't want to miss that. Okay, back to tonight's main event. Dr. Yam needs no introduction, given that she is so well known in the field of radiation oncology, and you'll also hear a bit more about her background during the podcast itself. I'll save a thousand words and just show what I think is a really beautiful picture of her greeting one of her patients with a wonderful hug. I think we all look forward to being able to say hi to our patients this way once the pandemic is behind us. Okay, well, without any further ado about nothing from me, let's turn it over to Dr. Prasad for a Midsummer Night's stream of plenary session. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to a Midsummer Night Stream version of Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm Associate Professor at uh, the University of California, San Francisco. And I, it's my pleasure to be doing this live, uh, the first ever live Plenary Session recording. And I'm joined uh, by the great Dr. Sue Yam. Uh, Dr. Yam is Professor at the University of California, San Francisco. She's a practicing radiation oncologist. And many of you here uh, will know her for her um, superb work um, in head and a cancer and in clinical trials. Um, and so I'm going to turn it over 
to Dr. Yam, who's going to be our guest host uh, for this evening, um, who's going to coordinate the discussion. Uh, but hopefully, um, we're going to get to learn a lot more about what uh, makes Dr. Yam tick. So thank you so much for being here and joining us in this live plenary session. Dr. Yam. So Dr. Prasad um, has invited me slash introduced me, <laughs> and uh, we're going to work it out. <laughs> So, so uh, you know, one of the things that I think uh, kind of is really interesting about the two of us being here together, uh, I would say, is that um, maybe uh, you had a very traditional training and pursued a very interesting and um, kind of unconventional career pathway, whereas I had very unconventional um, training and background yeah. and uh, pursued a more conventional training. And I've actually been thinking about that a lot this week. Like, like, how does that happen? How do, uh, how does a personal reversal happen as opposed to a medical reversal? <laughs> so I'm right, a little yeah. curious about that actually, Vinay. Do you want to talk, tell me about a little bit, or Dr. Prasad, can I call you Vinay? No, please. I invite you yeah, to call yeah. my first name, please. Uh, yeah. How does that happen for you? Uh, that's a, that uh, well, okay. Um, uh, that's a good thing, though, to start. And then and then we'll turn it over to you and you can take us through, um, you know, the sort of training that you had and that led you to uh, medicine. But I guess in my case, um, you know, I uh, did my undergraduate at Michigan State University, uh, which wasn't too far uh, from where I went to high school and where I grew up. Um, and uh, my undergraduate was, um, you know, I took a number of courses in philosophy and I ended up majoring in that. But I also did all the pre-medical curricula stuff. I think I went into college, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to go to medical school, um, but I knew I liked science. And along the way, I got kind of roped into to taking some philosophy classes. Um, and then, you know, I applied traditionally right out of um, college, went to medical school at the University of Chicago. Um, and there, um, you know, met a number of people who were really sort of stellar people in evidence-based medicine. And I got a really good background in that. Um, and to be honest with you, if I really went back and sort of put myself in the mind of that person back then, I would say, um, you know, that was somebody who really thought that, you know, I'm just going to have a private practice career. Um, I'm going to see patients um, and I, I'm not a lab person. I'm not really interested in clinical trials. Um, and uh, and that's going to be my thing. I'm just going to be a, a practitioner, which I continue to believe is, you know, the most noble thing that we do, um, even if we do other stuff. Um, and then when I was a resident, I think I was increasingly pulled in sort of a research direction when, you know, it was really clinical situations that I encountered. You know, we were in the CCU and somebody put a stent in and I started to ask myself, why is this patient getting a stent? And I looked into the literature and I read Courage and Oat and I read, you know, the clinical trials of, of that day back then. Um, and I started to have questions about the evidence base. And so, you know, with one of my um, medical school professor, mentors, Adam Seafew, we started to write a few papers. Um, and after a while, you kind of get known for writing papers about medical evidence. Um, and uh, it kind of it kind of snowballed. And so then when I went to do my fellowship in Hemonk, which again, I pursued mostly for clinical reasons, um, I had this undercurrent of doing research in evidence-based medicine. And at the NCI, you know, I had the opportunity to go over to FDA a little bit um, to learn from people who did a lot of drug approval um, about clinical trial design and things like that. And those two things, evidence and trials, they fit nicely together. And so by the time I finished my fellowship, um, you know, I had done a number of projects and papers in this kind of unique space of maybe you'd call it meta research or health policy. And uh, and then when I applied for faculty, which we could talk about, um, you know, it just kind of continued from there. And so, you know, I guess 
I think you're accurate in the sense that my current career is non-traditional because I see patients, you know, a couple days in clinic and I attend on service, but my research is not clinical trials. It's not um, lab. It's health policy and it's a unique type of health policy that doesn't really fit in many buckets. And so, you know, that's how I found myself doing it. Uh, it was never sort of sought out. It wasn't intentional. It was just kind of, I fell into it. Now I wonder, let me turn it over to you. You know, you- I find, yeah, I find that so interesting yeah, okay. because, you know, your story really resonates with me because it just speaks to how much, uh, you know, one single person can really influence, uh, your, the rest of your life. Um, uh, and I've seen that happen. And so, you know, and it's, it's funny because as you get to a certain level, you start to realize that you also have that influence on other people, as I think you probably do now in your current uh, sort of trajectory. And, um, you know, other people start to as they get further along in their career. And I, um, yeah, so my story is kind of similar. I, 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 I was, uh, <laughs> I was uh, bumping along in um, uh, really as a writer and thinking I was, uh, you know, my career was sort of heading that direction with a lot, a lot of interest in that. And, um, some people on the call may not know I, I did a concurrent PhD in English while I was at the University of Pennsylvania and I really was thinking a lot about like well you know am I going to do psychiatry or medical editing or am I possibly going to become a journalist and um, you know Eli Gladstein and, and Steve Hahn to a lesser extent actually just literally changed the course of my whole life and mm. so it's it's fascinating to me like you sort of meet this one person and and it's that one person who sort of just opens this other complete, uh, uh, you know, really trajectory for you. Right. Yeah. I guess I, I, um, you know, I continue to think of Adam, uh, as, uh, you know, somebody who's both been a mentor to me, but also a friend, a colleague, a collaborator, and somebody who I, you know, I like a great deal. And he did probably, um, you know, uh, was willing to work with me on stuff that maybe was even initially, maybe even outside of his comfort zone too, but something that he was happy to kind of work out with me. And, and that kind of led to, yeah, my current career path. Uh, yeah. One of the things, you know, yeah. one of the things I think about not to interrupt you, but no, like, no, you know, there's so much emphasis right now on mentorship and sponsorship. And I'm just going to throw this out there because this is, you know, we, we've been having random conversations up this whole week and this is yeah. going to be another one. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I kind of wonder about the magic of mentorship and sponsorship and how that happens and whether you can really sort of program something like that or legislate something like that. There's all these programs spring up, right? Like it's kind of like the, the um, you know, ice cream du jour, you know, diversity ice cream, mentorship, ice cream. But I, 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 I struggle with that a lot because how do you make these things actually effective, right? There's a certain uh, match of personality, interests, a certain friction of approach that has to happen for a good mentorship relationship. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you've actually, have you mentored anybody? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or have you thought about that? I'm just curious. That's funny you say that. You know, I, I, I cringe when I hear those terms because I feel like I don't always have a good sense of what they mean. Um, and I guess, you know, if you ask me that question, I, I don't know. Here's what I, here's what I do know. Um, you know, whenever somebody who is in training comes to me looking for a project, I think 99 out of 100 times I find something for them to work on. Um, so I've worked with so many people on like many, many publications and that sort of thing. Um, but is that really mentorship? That's, but that, that might be part of it. And then the next component oh, is anytime somebody yeah. comes to me and they ask me about, you know, should I go into pediatrics or go into internal medicine? Should I go into hemonc or should I go into orthopedic surgery? I'm always willing to do what I think the best people did for me, which was, you know, let, yeah, I'm happy to get a cup of coffee with you and let's talk about it. Um, and, and, and that to me is, a, is really a, lot, a, a type of mentorship. Um, 
whenever people come to me asking about, you know, Hemong fellows thinking about their job, I'm happy to talk with them about, you know, going to work for Kaiser, going to work for private practice and what that looks like and give and let them know experiences of my classmates. Um, but in terms of, but I think many people think mentorship to be sort of apprenticeship. Like I'm a clinical trialist who does GU oncology and I'm going to mentor somebody to be a trialist who does GU oncology. And I guess by that definition, I probably don't feel as if I've mentored anyone because I haven't created anyone who has been so foolish enough to pursue what I have pursued, which is kind of this health policy space. How yeah, do you, how do you I mean, feel about it? You are it? so broad in your interests. I really like that article you wrote in, uh, I think it was Medscape, about the CV wars. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, and, oh, that, you know, obviously that resonated with me. Maybe you want to explain that a little bit. But I can just say, as someone who had a very um, unusual background coming in, you do sort of wonder, and I am getting to a point with this, which I will in a couple seconds, but you want to explain what you meant by CV wars? Um, I guess what I meant by CV wars is, you know, I think back about when I was a high school kid, what did I do? You know, I worked as a, a bagger in Kroger and I hung out with my friends and, you know, maybe I did some stuff that I, we don't talk about on this podcast, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I wasn't thinking about medical school. I wasn't working in someone's lab. I didn't have any publications. I don't think I published an article until I was a resident and, 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 and people of my generation, I'm not that, you know, that far along, but that was considered uh, precocious. That was early to publish an article. A few years before, you, junior faculty were kind of publishing their first articles. Recently, I got an email from a kid um, um, who said, um, and I'm not using the word kid pejoratively because this person said, um, you know, I'm a sophomore. I want to work in your, in your group. And it was a sophomore in high school. And I was like, wow. And the more I look at applications, I see people, you know, doing really things that we used to not see in junior faculty being done in high school students. And so I call this the arms race. And it's a product of the way in which we have created, I think, selection filters and pressures for picking people for medical school. Um, but this is the part that probably you're going to connect about, which is that I believe there is a value to squandering some time in your youth. It helps you figure out who you are and what you what you stand for. Does it also make you think more independently? Because one of the things I wanted to get to with this was um, actually bioplausibility, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Believe it or not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you were going there. Uh, uh, I was going there. Yeah. No, I'm because one of the things I thought was really interesting in your book and which I thought about the, you know, like almost the whole time I was reading it was, you know, why, why do we love bioplausibility? Like, why is that such an appealing model and concept and are we like training people to do that are we pick or are we picking people who are sort of um inclined in that direction so bioplausibility you know i'm just going to tell you you know my my view yeah. of it it's kind of this idea that you have like this measurement culture right you extrapolate these yeah. measurements and you feel like you've done an experiment whether that's on rats or on people and then you take this measurement and then you sort of translate it into this effect right and it's a very experimental sort of approach. And because you have that approach, then you think it models everything else, right. like everything follows from that model. Um, and, you know, of course, here, I'm going to talk about something that radiation oncologists are completely jealous of. Um, every time I see, the, I'm just going to say it out loud here in public, every time I see the phrase response rate, it just drives me nuts. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you that I don't know how many people in the room share this feeling, but I'm very jealous of response rate. And I'm also very irritated by it because it's not something that radiation oncologists can do. Um, if you've been in radiation oncology for some time, you've realized that we don't actually have response rates most of the time. Most of the time we radiate something and the scan looks, you know, maybe a little bit better. I mean, there are situations where you get a CR, but most of the time it looks a little better. It's a very slow response. You might get a lot of scar tissue, a lot of inflammation. Response rate is not something that radiation oncologists think mm. of. And so if you look at the radiation oncology literature, actually, 
a lot of it is really based on survival. Yes, and we can talk about radiation oncology literature and how that's evolved from essentially yes. billing records, but that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. Um, basically looking at, you know, survival because that's what we, we get. Um, and so I'm curious, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about one of the things I thought was really fascinating was your story of how response rate came about and why do medical oncologists like that so much? What's up with that? Oh, because it's uh, things that can be measured become become uh, virtuous in and of themselves. Um, but I guess, you know, you have, you got two parts to this question, which I think are really fascinating. So, I mean, I'll give you my two cents on the two parts. One, why are we seduced by bioplausibility? I guess I would say in part because I think we don't do a terrific job of teaching science. Um, you know, when you, I mean, at least I'll speak to my own education, my science classes, even through early college, were not really science like why do we believe certain things based on what experiments? They were really learning kind of canonical models that were based on many experiments without always understanding the underlying experiments that went into those models. So we mm -hmm. think of science as sort of model building models that people are widely accepted. We don't really understand what were the studies that showed why this model is true and why alternative models dissipated. The second thing I think fits in there is when you read medical history, it is written as sort of an inexorable truth that, you know, why do we give Gleevec in CML? Because, um, you know, it saves lives. It's a transformative drug. Of course it is. Um, and it has this oncogene. And this oncogene was detected by, you know, Janet Rowley figured out the Philadelphia chromosome. And before that, they knew they knew that the chromosome would break. And, you know, it's and and then and you look at Brian's early paper in 1996, um, I think Nature Medicine. Uh, and when you give this to um, cell culture, you can you can kill the CML cells. It appears addicted to BCR-able oncogene. You know, it's a very parsimony parsimonious story. And when you look at medical history, you're constantly given parsimonious stories for everything we do. And what you don't get are the stories of all the people, tens of thousands of people who had a parsimonious story, but then it fell apart on phase three testing or it had unintended mm -hmm. toxicity. And so I think bioplausibility is in part a way in which human beings write history because we write to tell a linear story and we start with mm -hmm. what we do and we go backwards. And so it's natural that that's seductive. Um, but I think the important thing that you learn with evidence-based medicine or empiricism is that a lot of this stuff, you know, doesn't doesn't really work. Um, there's a huge failure rate, and not all bioplausible things fail. And plausible things and imp or well, successful things and things that failed are, were once both bioplausible. I guess the next part of your question, I think, is response rate, which is, you know, a terrific story. Um, it's an amazing story. I couldn't believe this story. I read the Charles story Mortel? like five times. Like I was like, how come you didn't write about this for three more pages? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what you, yeah. It's, it's, a great, it's a, like, I wanted to see their faces and stuff while they were doing this. I know. That's the, that's, it's a good section. That's the type that you need a good writer to write that. But no, I just write the, I just write the technical drudgery, which is, I mean, you know, there's, there's a very famous oncologist, Charles Mortel in Mayo Clinic. And, and uh, in the 1970s, he realized something, which was we give all these drugs to cancer patients and we need to figure out which of these drugs do we really go forward with in testing? Which of the drugs do we pursue in randomized studies to test what works and what doesn't work? Which drugs are we willing to say that's uh, that doesn't work? That's, that's, that's ineffective. And he realized that, you know, how do you figure that out in an era before, you know, you couldn't just run randomized trials on every compound. And he realized that, you know, you have to go based on tumor shrinkage, that tumor shrinkage is a marker of activity of the millions of candidate compounds in the universe. Very few of them will actually shrink tumors. And there's this whole story about Latro, which I didn't talk about, but I'm happy to talk about. But Charles Motel, one, one evening, he decided, how do you know how much tumors shrink before we can reliably detect that they have shrunk? It's, it's not really a, it's a question about measurement. It's a measurement question. And he gathered together 16 experienced oncologists. 
They were, unfortunately, all men. This was the era of the day. They brought the tool that they employed in his clinical practice, which was a caliper or some other tool, and they put a bunch of marbles on a table, and he rolled out foam rubber, and it came in a couple thicknesses, and he had him go around and measure the marbles. But unbeknownst to the audience, two of the marbles, or actually four of the marbles, two and two, were the same size. And so now Mortel has a really wonderful experiment where he knows how often do Sue and I measure the same marble the same way, and how often and how big and uh, how much different in size do marbles have to be before you and I will reliably agree that they have shrunk? And the answer was 50% bidimensional, which is the WHO indice. The answer was that's where response rate came from. It came from a study that asked in an age of calipers, what were the tumor dimensions we could reliably tell apart? And that has been carried forward and eventually morphed into a measure of efficacy. Now you go to ASCO meetings and they say, we got a new drug. It's got a 22% response rate. That's terrific. But that was never what Mortel meant. Mortel meant to use response rate as a way to screen drugs from the many things that were destined to fail. Um, So I think, you know, knowing a little bit about where response rate comes from reminds one that it is not a measure of efficacy in and of itself. Yeah, that speaks so much to me because uh, recently I got dragged into a whole bunch of AI work. And, um, you know, one of the things you talk about in AI is called dimensionality, right? And there's this thing called sort of low dimensionality or surface dimensionality, which is that the pattern that you can see on the surface may not actually reflect what's going on. So your story sounds so much like, you know, here's the guy touching the elephant or here's the surface dimensionality. But what does that really reflect? That whole system is based on what can be measured. Right. It's a it's a it's a um, uh, it's a it's a self-contained system that has no external referentiality. Um, And then, you know, the other thing, um, uh, I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but, you know, it just makes me wonder, like, you know, the whole system is so much based on measurement. And, you know, what's the you know, it it just talks about the fact that response rate really doesn't reflect so much deeper about things. Right. So as radiation oncologists, I can tell you, I've run trials where we used response rate. I had to use response rate. I was forced by the company to use response rate. Okay, full confessions. And I was frustrated by it because for instance, in skin cancers, response rate is a very uh, nebulous, maybe unusable concept Um, for three dimensionality, which radiation oncologists think about all the time or sinuous structures, which head and neck oncologists think about all the time. um, Perineural disease response rate just just as nothing. Of it's course, it's it a very surface yeah. two-dimensional measurement that you know does not reflect what's really happening to that patient. Mm. Um, but you know, um, the other thing I think about like when I, you know, from you know, other random part of my background here is the fact that, you know, I was really struck in your book by the way that you I think this is what you were trying to imply, that companies train us to believe in bioplausibility, that there is a oh, process yeah. that happens. You, you can you can interrupt me if I'm. No, 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 you're right. You're right. Um, yeah. You know that you that you go to this conference and there's this nice booth set up and you go in there and there are these pictures of you know I don't know molecules moving around yeah. and something going you know a lot going into some kind of key and then they show you like how that works and then they talk to you about it and maybe this drug even hasn't you know hasn't even been released yet, right? Of course. But you already love the story. You know, you already saw the pictures. Yeah. You already saw it what happens. I mean, I think that's what you were implying in the book. And, you know, that really speaks to me in terms of um, what you were saying about history, because as someone who spent a lot of time studying cultural history, you know, this is historiography, right? Yes. This is the meta history of what happens, which is that we write history to explain stories to ourselves and to make other people believe that story. Yeah. Um, I but mean, when I started thinking about that, yeah. I got to be honest with you, and I kind of freaked me out. Like, <laughs> 
I was like, whoa, you know, you're a player in history. I mean, I think, I think, I think you're, you're, you're accurate that that is an accurate characterization of my views. I, I'll give you a good example. Recently, I was on Twitter and I saw an ad that came to me based on what I like to look at, which I guess is oncology. And it said, um, some numbers matter. And then it said 100% of multiple myeloma has BCMA, B cell maturation antigen. Mm. What BCMA drug is yet approved by the FDA? None, none yet. But they're no, already but they're setting it up. They're, they're setting, setting it up. They're, they're laying s- the ground. <laughs> they're laying the groundwork. The bridge is being built. The bridge is being built, and so now you know BCMA. That's scary, man. Yeah. That's really scary. I'm that's, just going to tell you. <laughs> that's how. I mean, I think, and if I'm perfectly honest, and uh, you know, I know we have some people who run conferences, but um, and this doesn't speak to Astro, I but do. Um, but um, but one of the, I think the major purpose of oncology, medical oncology conferences, or at least one of the ways in which it's been exploited, we all know the central gala, the displays that have carpets so plush you can twist your ankle in it. Um, we all know that. Um, and, and, and we all know that much of the content, I think, is meant to give us a favorable impression of products before they even launch. I'll give you one example. You know, if I had you like lay on a psychiatry couch and I said words like vincristine, etoposide, cyclophosphamide, you're going to say, yuck, oh, that's a toxic, horrible drug, etoposide, oh, it gives me a, gives me a creepy feeling. Then I say words oh. like ibrutinib, um, veneta, venetoclax, um, oh. you know, I say, I say words like that and you're going to be, wow, you know, oh, that, that BTK, that's a really important target, BCL2. You know, but what's the difference between tubulin, paclitaxel's target, and BCL2? You know, they're very dirty targets. They're targets that do a lot of stuff in cells. But BCL2, that's targeted. That's, that's exquisitely targeted. Tubulin, even though paclitaxel is the most potent inhibitor of tubulin, tubulin, that's a, ter- that's, a dir- that's a dirty cytotoxic drug. So, I mean, all of the ways in which we even have this sort of visceral response to drugs is not based on an impartial consideration of the evidence. And, you know, we published a number of papers looking at response rate by class of medications now. Um, it's, I think, based on the fact that we are sort of constantly steeped in this this environment where we are kind of sold new drugs before they come um, in a, in by the industry. Uh, I think that's part of what they do. They may not even be aware that they're doing it, but, um, you know, this the same thing happened with the SSRI class of medications. Prior to SSRIs, um, companies spent tremendous um, money to get you to change your thinking around depression that it was a chemical imbalance, and that was sort of paving the way for the launch of Prozac. Um, but yeah. this is a tactic that's been used for a long time. You know, I mean, I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm going to tell you a little secret, and I yeah. hope you don't write your next book about it. No the one's same listening, thing- yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no one's listening. No one's listening. Spill it, uh, spill it. I mean, you know, it, it started to concern me because I was like, is the same thing happening in radiation oncology? I can tell you right now we have this, you know, this new technology called flash that's very fancy, mm. super fast flash. Super flash. Um, and, you know, I love it. Everybody loves it. It's an incredibly amazing thing that, you know, where you would treat patients to incredibly high doses of radiation with zero toxicity. I mean, who, you the know, holy grail. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Sounds great. Yeah. You would want that. Sign me up. You I don't even have. You, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah. but you know, um, the fact is that the companies are training us how to think about flash. So a lot of the education about flash is coming from the companies themselves. And I'll just say at the red journal, um, I was really proud that we uh, published an editorial, which I can point people to by Dr. Hendry, that really talks about flash in a different way, like the history of the science and what, you know, what flash really is and is not. And, um, um, and it just, you know, it's a, it's a very, very different perspective. So let me ask you something here. This is, this is the hard question. Um, how do you get outside of that system? How do you educate yourself about things that are going on? I mean, legitimately going on, right? Like I can't not know about flash, right? You can't not know about drugs. Like it just, that's not going to work. 
Um, so how do you educate yourself within a system that is so steeped in teaching us these stories um, in a very structured way, right? Yeah. That's a that's a really great question, and I guess it's kind of like you know yeah. getting outside the house. Yeah, you know? master's tools won't destroy the master's house. How do you how do you get how how do you get out of that? Yeah, and I guess I mean I don't even pretend that I am fully out. I'm probably as ensconced as anyone else. I might just have a little piece of me out, and that's what led to a lot of uh, work. Um, but I guess I think ways in which you kind of burst that bubble. I mean, one honest thing is often it does take new eyes um, to burst a bubble. So sometimes it's the medical student on rounds with us asking a question like, but why do you really do, you know, what, where do you really do that? Or, or why, what, where is this response? Why is it 30%? You know, the medical students got the, the confidence you sometimes. You the medical students. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, that is not what I was expecting you to say. But sometimes it's the person with the freshest eyes. Student. Yeah. The next medical student that rounds with me is going to be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something I don't know, medical student. Student and impress me, impress me. This better be good. Um, Something outside, completely yeah. outside the system. So I think yeah, that, I think um, that's one. Um, I'll give I, you a couple. I think you're yeah. pointing to the idea of of of, um, of kind of unvarnished inquisitiveness. Yes, right? unvarnished. Yes. Or, yeah, or or sort of or sort of un un. Um, un, yeah, uninfluenced. And and un we, we forget after many years of practice, we don't even see the things we are doing, the choices we're making in our practice. But when you were the first moment you were an intern, all of those yeah. choices were like visibly apparent to you. I think that's one. I think the second thing is sometimes it's a litmus test to talk to people. I have some friends, uh, some high school friends who you know, um, are in all sorts of different walks of life. And every once in a while, I tell them about the, the game changer drug at the national meeting. And one of my friends once asked me, what was the survival without the drug? And I said, it was a median survival of six months. I said, what was the survival with the drug? I said, 11 months. And I was like, that's, yeah. that's great. That's, a, that's almost a doubling of, a, and he's like, 11 months, get the hell out of here. Do better than that. He's like, what's wrong with you? You lost perspective? Yeah, um, yeah I love the yeah. game changer part of your book. I mean, I was actually sort of, again, horrified and, and very disturbed um, that you had actually gone and investigated this on Twitter and found that that language was used on Twitter, um, uh, game changer language, sort of meaning extraordinary language or superlative language um, by people who had received more compensation. And that, that was that was that was really, you know, it was eye opening to me. I was kind of wondered as an editor because I've been an editor my whole life. I'm always editing people for some reason. It's just this thing I do. And um, you know, game change. I'll just tell you, game changer language really bothers me. It's always oh, yeah. bugged me a lot, and I always wondered why. Now I know. Now I have a, re <laughs> I have a reason to suspect it. But, um, but yeah. So so anyway, um, it's but it's it's difficult, right? Because you also sorry about that. You That's also okay. have to you have to. Um, how can I put this? Nobody likes game changer. It, yeah. It's a marketplace of ideas, though, benign. Yes. And the reality is that I can say this as someone who's deep in the clinical trial world. And has to justify, you know, my choices and my, um, you know, my my decisions about things a lot. It's really hard to avoid that kind of language when you're trying to, to you know, essentially to sell. Right? Oh well, we are. I mean, that's part and of again, it. Again, I think this gets back to like, how do you get outside that system? Like, how yeah. do how do you advise people to, you know, to work within that system in a way that is um, that has integrity? Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, just to clarify one point, I mean, you know, we did work on Game Changer, but the specific thing you're talking about, about tweets is we did show that if you are paid by a drug company, you're more likely to tweet positively about that drug than you are about other drugs from other companies. And, and in fact, probably disproportionately about that drug. Um, but um, in terms of, of, of this salesmanship, I mean, this is kind of baked in. This is, I think, one of the deepest, most corrosive problems in science, which is that you want scientists to, ed to be very dispassionate um, 
uh, analysts of the evidence. And dispassionate analysis would tell you that most putative drug compounds are going to fail. They're not going to come to market. But we incentivize grant writing. We incentivize money. We incentivize trials based on the person who can make the biggest pitch for their product. And I think that is a a fundamental failure in the system is that we make good scientists bullshit artists to some degree. We encourage them to upsell what they have, um, to oversell their results. And uh, that is a very corrosive uh, thing that I think it's very difficult. There have been some proposals like this PQRST model, some things like that. Um, there have been different proposals to try to tackle this. But the fundamental, I think, failure is to recognize that the best scientist is not the one who has the discovery. That's often the most serendipitous scientist. The best scientist is the one who does the most honest work, knowing that some of us will succeed, but most of us will fail. So let me ask you a question then. So if you had to redesign the nationally funded clinical trials system, yeah. how would you do that? I already know how you would redesign the FDA, but let's talk about the clinical trial system because I care more about that. Okay. Well, I mean, the first the first thing is uh, you're going to like it because, um, well, I mean, I think, I mean, let's just put some, some numbers here. I mean, one reality is um, we currently spend at least a trillion dollars on healthcare spending at the federal level in direct payments, Medicare and Medicaid. We spend even more in, in, in employer-based subsidies. So we're spending trillions of dollars as a society on healthcare. That's one fact. The next fact is how much of that money is being spent on things that we legitimately do not know if they make people better or worse the way we're using that. We just legitimately do not know. And the answer is there are different estimates in the literature, but it wouldn't be surprising if it's anything between 20 and 50% of things we just have no idea about. And and what percent of expenditure is that? That could be as much as a, a third of federal expenditure. And there are a number of sort of annual papers that say what percent of healthcare is waste, and it's always so massive. What do we spend on clinical trials? And let's just talk about non-conflicted clinical trials. Let's just take cancer medicine. You know, we're spending $150 billion globally on cancer drugs. The NIH budget for, for NCI is something like $5, 6000000000 billion. And of that, only a sliver is for clinical trials and, and cooperative group studies. Um, I think that ratio is broken. I mean, if you work for a company and you're saying, we have a $100 billion outlay each year, and I have no idea if this is helping our bottom line, um, it'll cost me $1 million to test whether or not this $100 billion expenditure is valuable. Should I do it? The company's going to say, yeah, and because if it turns out it doesn't help, we can save $100 billion. But we don't look at it that way in the federal system because obviously lobbyists and things of that nature. Um, so I guess one thing I would do is I would crank up you have to slowly and steadily crank up. You can't crank it up all at once. You got to slow, you got to ramp it up. Federal investment in clinical trials. You want clinical trials that are run by non-conflicted groups. You want the people who design the clinical trials, who think of the endpoints, to be academicians who are as non-conflicted as possible. Um, and then you want a research agenda that prioritizes questions based on something called value of information, but that basically means things that are likely to make an impact, likely to save a lot of money, prevent a lot of toxicity. That's what we should prioritize versus things that are used less frequently and uh, less likely to be toxic and things like that. Um, And so I think with a really robust public effort, I mean, we could take a minute and just point out the fact that the pandemic has revealed um, nothing less than that the U.S., Uh, What was the greatest nation uh, has a failure to commit to public science. We 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 failed to invest in public health and we we failed to invest in clinical trials. And we have to learn that dexamethasone um, is beneficial in covid from the from the UK study. 
because we're we are we we couldn't get it together to run that trial here, even though we have eight to ten times as many patients with COVID. I mean, I think that represents, I think, structural failures in the in the U.S. system. And so I guess I would crank up funding. I would try to make it as non-conflicted as possible. One of the problems with conflict and getting money from the industry and oncology is that people who do that have better careers. We've proved that in some papers. Um, we need to reward junior faculty who stay non-conflicted. And maybe the reward is you get to design these clinical studies in this huge budget, um, this agenda. So anyway, those are just some ideas. I think like the epilogue of the book kind of gets at this space. Um, but yeah, you're, I mean, I think it's a really important question. I do agree with you. I have to interject just one okay. quick question. Any uh, morning after thoughts on recovery? Any regrets <laughs> on the tweets or the, the advocacy? <laughs> no. <laughs> the real publication's out now. I was right. I was right. No, I mean, I guess... <laughs> No regrets whatsoever. No regret. I mean, I guess I, I would. Did it all. <laughs> I, 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 I own it. I, I was. I put all my. I pushed all my chips in. You do say in the book you don't like preprints. You do say that. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, what do you say? I don't like. I don't like medicine by press release. Um, which is oh what, yeah, press release. Yeah, medicine press by press release. Which is what it was. I guess I would say. I mean, I think uh, I don't like medicine by press release because typically that means something like um, ribocyclib just had a impressive response rate in in uh, in you know prostate cancer or something like it. You know, that's what it typically means. Um, in this case, I think it's a unique example because uh, one, the drug is pennies a day. It's not the company. No one has financial stake in the company. Um, two, they published the protocol. You could have read the protocol for a month before. The statistical analysis plan was on the internet. The press release shows you all of the endpoints, the interaction coefficient. And now that I read the pre print and the supplement, there, there was nothing there that really changes the conclusion. And I think that's, uh, that's a view that most people have shared. But the debate at the time was, we don't, we shouldn't trust press releases. And, and I guess I think that that's another example of, we, well, we had just been burned. We had been burned by Surgisphere. Um, we had been burned by, you know, clearly faulty and fraudulent, uh, or likely fraudulent research. Um, and so we were, we were apprehensive. But, you know, I think we, we took it out in the wrong place. Um, so I, I think recovery was a good study. And I applaud them. And I, yeah. yeah, I'm going to go back to something you said. I do agree with you that the incentives in the clinical trial world, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use a different term. I think they're misaligned. Mm. Um, and I, I do think that, um, you know, uh, we kind of, I think we had talked about this earlier this week, uh, just the fact that dependence of, of, of university medical systems on soft money yes. and what that has done um, in terms of, you know, I mean, like, like all my clinical trial friends basically sort of say like, well, you know, you eat what you kill. Yes. Um, not my rat on friends because they don't really know anything, you know, about that world. But my medical oncology friends who taught me everything I know. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, it's just it's just, uh, you know, it's 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 a very it's a very different set of incentives. And I do have friends in the UK. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with their trial system. It does run a little bit differently. Um, you know, I, I won't say they have so much more money. I do think funding is part of the issue too. And I think they're facing, you know, similar pressures as we do on a lesser scale. But the fact is that, you know, it's hard to run publicly funded clinical trials yeah. because the universities require so much overhead at this point. It's so expensive. Um, how do you close that gap? You can only close that gap by going to sponsors. Yes. Right. And that, that incentive, I agree with you. It's, it's misaligned. Um, and I, I just, you know, I'm not sure how to solve that other than, you know, we have to somehow unhook the, addiction to soft money. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say some people might view this as a great success of 
uh, right-leaning economical thinking, which was that a gradual disinvestment in federally and publicly funded science, coupled with Beidou that has incentivized com- uh, universities to pursue patents um, and, and profitability, um, have really kind of changed this nature of public universities. Um, you know, public universities are, um, uh, they're, they're a fish tank. They're a, they're a, they're a fish tank for like startup ideas. You know, everybody wants to be uh, a laboratory scientist who's going to have their spin-off startup company. That's what the university wants to invest a lot of money in. Um, and, and we have become addicted to private funding. Um, and, and insofar as we have that addiction, it, it builds this soft, this soft um, funding model, it builds all of these perverse incentives. And you're absolutely right that, you know, who does a university, many universities really want to hire in medical oncology? Do they want to hire somebody who's going to come and get grants from maybe NIH, one, maybe one PCORI grant, sorry, not NIH, let's be honest, a PCORI or HRQ grant and do kind of policy work? Or do they want to bring somebody on board who can bring in 20, 30 clinical trials um, with the industry? And these are clinical trials that are written in a way that they're going to pay 30000 35000 40000 per head, and it's going to cost us 20000 per head, so we're going to have a huge slush fund at the end of that. I mean, that's what we have created, the incentive that trialists quote unquote trialists in at medical oncology are often people who have good pharma connections and are willing to agree with the pharmaceutical company's plan. And we are incentivizing that and that's the the most recruited phenotype in the space. And it and it has been a, a policy success by some folks um, to move universities in this direction. And so the sciences, which were once, I think, incredibly critical of the private sector, have now become a feeder for the private sector. Yeah, I don't know how to solve that other than advocacy. I do want to ask you about one other thing, which is that, um, you know, going back to this idea of response rate, you know, one of the things I've noticed in a lot of clinical trials is that, you know, there's a lot of pressure, and I'll say this is even true within the national clinical trial system to find short-term endpoints. Oh, yes. And I've often wondered about this. It's like, you know, we've really shifted from, you know, what I would say. I like to think that, you know, radiation oncologists, like I said earlier, you know, we love overall survival and yeah. we're still like advocates of overall survival, but very few people are anymore. Um, That's you know, the only reason going- you guys invite me to talk. <laughs> <laughs> we're go- I mean, we're going to shorter and shorter endpoints, yeah. right? And response rate is the shortest endpoint of all. Oh, and why are we why are we going to shorter endpoints? And one of the things I thought was really interesting in your book was the connection to patent life, um, sort of drug patent life. And um, I kind of didn't really I started thinking about that a lot, just you know the timing of that, like how that actually works, um, which I'm not that familiar with. But it seems like um, you know it, it, it seems it's almost like it's almost like if the drug patent life were 40 years we'd probably be able to have longer endpoints but because the drug patent life is sort of set at this arbitrary what is it 20 years or something it's 20 like years that? from the patent yeah i mean it, it just it, you know you kind of have to have this very accelerated timeline um i mean i i guess i would say um i don't know maybe i view it just slightly differently than that i guess i would say um the thing about all of these intermediary endpoints from minimal residual disease to uh response rate to all path cr is that um, uh, they um, uh, one? They're easily measure, easily easily measurable. Um, two, um, I'm not sure they save as much time as we think. So we did a study where we noticed that all these cancer drugs approved based on response rate. They're often approved based on response rate, the percent of people with 30% or more shrinkage, plus duration of response. So of those people who had shrinkage, we followed them 16, 18, 20 months to know the median duration of response was durable. And then we actually compared that against measuring survival in a randomized trial. And it turns out it's actually not as much of a time savings as you would think. It's something like it brings drugs to market 11 
months faster on an eight-year time horizon. It's a paper we published in JAMA Internal Medicine. But what I think the benefit is, is not necessarily the time savings, but the fact that these surrogates are much more likely to be positive than survival, at least for drugs, that of 100 drugs that can improve a response rate, we don't know the right answer, but maybe you'll need one out of every five or two out of every five actually make people live longer, live better. But the company's incentive, of course, is to get the approval and get the market share. So I think it's a product of success rate. It lowers failure rates. Um, and I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced that it, it speeds time as much as people think because of the nuance of, of durability. That's interesting. I mean, it probably has to do with the fundamentals of statistics itself, yes. right? Because yeah. you need you need a large effect size. Yes. And so maybe you're not going to get a large enough effect size if you use survival um, as opposed to something like response rate. Yeah. And the way around it, of course, is to pick the sickest patients, to pick people with high event rates. And then at least the same hazard ratio will give you an absolute uh, faster time to result. Um, so yeah. one of the things that we I think... Yeah, well, I'm going to stop you there because I don't think... I, well, this is actually one of the things I was going to ask you okay. about. Do you think the sickest patients are in clinical trials? Oh, I'm no, sure. they're not. Of course not yeah no i think that um they're they're patently excluded from clinical trials what i was saying that is, is if if you had a system where you 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 told drug manufacturers look you're gonna have to improve overall survival if you want these drugs on the market they're not gonna do pertuzumab in the cleopatra study in frontline metastatic cancer they're gonna go third line and then they're gonna try to move it forward because the third line trial is gonna result faster but that's a great question and then maybe we'll turn to audience questions after this one but i guess the answer to your question of course is that we know um Patients on clinical trials are 10 years younger than average U.S. cancer patients. They have far fewer comorbidities. They're much more likely to be white. They're more likely to be men um, than average Americans. Um, and so we have racial, um, gender, um, and, uh, and age um, uh, differences. And um, those very likely lead to differences in actual um, a, a sort of efficacy effectiveness gap, that there are drugs like serafinib and HCC that have an efficacy, but do they have effectiveness? Do they actually make people live longer, live better in the real world? And I uh, have my doubts for many of these drugs with you know narrow therapeutic windows. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because if you actually look at the percentages of patients who could qualify according to those criteria, it's yes. a small fraction. It's probably like a third of the actual patients with that condition could have qualified for that trial. And so it does raise um, you know questions about generalizability, um, uh, and diverse, I mean, in my mind, diversity as well, right? We're clearly leaving out, you know, huge sectors of the population. Um, the NCI has actually tried to correct that. They've corrected their language such that they no longer exclude people with second malignancy right. as much. And HIV and there's um, another sort of correction. They're, they're encouraging yeah. HIV. Um, I think, you know, there's a movement now to try to include more elderly. Um, but the fundamental, you know, again, you're running up against this issue that, um, you know, uh, the companies want the best performers. Exactly. And, and this actually is another thing that really and irritates the And the trialists want to win. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> well, this is, this is another yeah. thing you can trot out to, like, please your radiation oncology friends, is that um, it's very difficult to run clinical trials with radiation therapy because it's always consistently regarded as an element that would introduce more side effects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And no one wants their drug to be associated with, you know, the radiation oncology side effects or you know, enhanced by that. And so it's, it's actually very, very difficult to do meaningful trials in that space. Um, That's interesting. Um, why don't, let's have people type questions. And while they type, I'll just say a couple things on this topic. 
Um, one, you know, Lou Fehrenbacher, who used to work in Kaiser Vallejo, did a really nice study of consecutive patients in Kaiser um, and eligibility for two clinical trials. I think one was the Sandler carbopaclitaxel study. And he found, just as you say, 20% of people in Kaiser who come in the door would be eligible for these studies based on the strict inclusion criteria. And then I guess the next thing I would say is that um, there have been a number of efforts within FDA and outside of FDA to um, basically push for broader populations and trials. But I think they go about it the wrong way because it's not a matter of the inclusion criteria. If you, if you took away all those rules, you're still going to get the same patients on trials. You have to, you have to I don't want to say punish, you have to enforce the population. What do I mean by that? If you do your clinical trial and people are 10 years younger than average and they uh, don't reflect uh, uh, demographics of America and they don't have any comorbidities, I believe that we need to craft a new regulatory pathway. We'll give them accelerated drug approval and we'll do a post-marketing commitment to prove that the drug works in broader population and that will be the study required for regular approval conversion. So I think that the FDA needs to sort of use the stick um, and not just the carrot in this space. Right. I mean, I think one of the things you point out in the book is that accelerated approvals aren't followed up on. Right? Oh, yeah. They're, Abysmal. They're, they're, given, they're given generously, and then there's kind of no back end. That's, a, I think, one of the great failures is that um, a couple of government accountability office reports and a number of papers have shown that the post-marketing commitments that we do have for cancer drugs are often delayed ignored, neglected, and often, and sometimes they do a post-marketing commitment, but it's the exact same surrogate endpoint that led to drug approval. It's not survival or quality of life. I yeah, guess, I mean, here, yeah. here we're getting into like, you know, what's, what's, you know, what can we do about the FDA? Yeah. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll just say it's, it's, a, it's I, I find this to be a really difficult struggle. I mean, I, I, part of my work is in lung cancer. And you've got to be aware that there's been some incredible advances in targeted therapy with lung cancer. I think you talk about that. You yes. sort of talk about like, what if the patient's a miracle? Yes. How do you how do you kind of how do you kind of psychologically and mentally process that? And it is true. I mean, we have put patients on you know BRF inhibition and seen amazing responses in lung cancer that we just never would have seen right with anything else. And um, it's a it's a it's a very difficult thing to sort of say like you know no that's a that's a rare outlier response that may or may not lead to survival in this particular context. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, um, I guess I would say that, I mean, I absolutely agree that and I, I, yeah. I do like your, I, I do yeah. like your idea about precision medicine. I and mean, we've had this own discussion in my cancer center, just about, you know, the paucity of real results in terms of precision medicine, right? Like you test all these people, very few of them actually end up, um, being in the right place at the right time to qualify for a trial. Mm -hmm. And um, the end point is very small, but then there's this future potential, right? And mm -hmm. are you kind of sort of missing out by shutting that down? Um, it's, it's, I, I'm guessing we're not the only cancer center that's struggling with that because, and the immense amount of expense involved, right? Yeah. Um, you may have a, you may have a more clear view on no, this. No, no, no. I, I guess, uh, well, let me let me let's let me just make a few points people are putting in the comments and I see Brian has popped up. Um, so uh, Fran is pointing out that people patients with disabilities are often excluded from clinical trials. I think that's an excellent point. Um, Anna is asking, what role does advocacy play in helping address the issue of pharmaceutical influence in clinical trials? 
I guess I would say, um, you know, I think, um, I mean, part of the reason why I even tried to write the book was to sort of bring awareness to these issues. I think that, um, you know, as as physicians that we're in the prime position to kind of push back, um, we may not be able to initially kind of change how the clinical trials are done, but at least we can change the dialogue at national meetings. I'm often, you know, why is this podcast called Plenary Session? It's a bit of a joke because it's the exact opposite of the actual Plenary Session at ASCO. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not going to cheerlead for all these drug products. I'm going to often pick things that I'm picking because I can rip them to bits. Um, and and I think that the more we kind of teach the skills of evidence-based medicine, the better we do um, at being critical and being sort of honest uh, appraisers of evidence. Um, Matt is asking, how well do you think oncologists trialists measure living better and what can be done to improve quality of life measurement? That's a great question. We have a paper showing that, you know, one of the fundamental failures is we only measure quality of life on drug till progression. And the moment people progress, we don't measure quality of life. So it's possible that drugs improve PFS. They improve quality of life initially, but it's followed by rapid progression, no improvement in OS and deteriorated quality of life. We don't even know that. Um, and so I think they have to, quality of life has to be measured um, in everybody. Uh, in every trial, um, and especially until um, the final thing that happens to cancer patients, which is often death, we have some more work on that coming out. Um, do you have any suggestions for how to support national clinical trials or IITs with radiation therapy that don't necessarily include substantial pharma or industry support? Now, that's a question for you, Dr. Yum. Um, oh, uh, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, there's like, you know, there's grants and you can try to uh, sort of go, uh, you know, a more translational science pathway. But I mean, I think it gets down to the fundamental issue that Benai and I are pointing out, which is that um, it's just so expensive to run trials, right? And so you can't really do that without support from somewhere, from your department, from your cancer center, from some public organization or advocacy organization that decides to fund you. And, and part of the issue here is this sort of, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how we get out of this situation, this kind of dependence on soft, soft funding. Mm. Um, Ramez is asking uh, great book. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'll pay you. I'll pay you later for saying that uh, as a trainee, how do you remain critical while it is expected of you to just toe the line? Uh, that's a great question. And I guess uh, you might not like my answer, which is, uh, uh, wait, wait for the moment. Wait for, wait for my, my general answer is wait till you're an attending, uh, because you're still very vulnerable as a trainee. I mean, you don't need to speak out on every issue. It's, it's good enough to read and keep a critical mind and follow things. And I think there's role to speak out. Um, but you know, you don't have to be the one who, who puts your, your, your neck on the chopping block. Um, but wait for it, wait till you're an attending. And then I think, you know, in this profession, you know, I, I think one of the things that's, that's often unstated is, um, you know, as a doctor in this country, um, and this is something I heard Malcolm Gladwell say, which somebody asked him, you know, why do you do all these stuff? And he was like, you know, I've, I've never been afraid to take risks. I, I live in American Canada. I'm always going to be fed and clothed. And as a doctor in this country, you're always going to be able to get a job. I mean, that's the reality. Uh, some clinical job, you're always going to be able to put food on the table. So I think when you do become an attending, you should use that as um, license to take some risks and push back on things you disagree with. Um, I think Dr. Kavanaugh has a question, but um, here's one. What should be the role of an institution's technology transfer office in promoting innovation while trying to protect cash on new drugs? Oh, well, I think that that's a, that's a huge topic. And as we all know, um, often the universities part with very lucrative products for pittance, um, you know, um, uh, just a fraction. I mean, people talk a lot about how much UCLA received for enzalutamide, which is in the billions. Um, but the product, of course, is making potentially upward of 20 to $40 billion in life cycle sales. And so uh, only a fraction goes to UCLA. CAR-T and Novartis and the licensing agreement, you can look into that. I think it's a big, it's a big challenge. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, I don't think um, 
I, I know the answer to that. Let's see what Dr. Kavanaugh has to say. I see him. Oh, well, I, you know, I didn't want to interrupt. Flo, you guys are awesome. First of all, two things. Um, you know, when I made up this stupid, ridiculous title to this thing, a bad pun, you know, uh-huh. it's really terrible because I don't know what glass of wine I've had that night. But And then when I also said that subline about the interviewer and the interviewee, I didn't really think that was going to be serious either. But two, you have 100% turned the tables in a fantastic way. And Vinay, you're such a good sport. I really want to thank you for just rolling with it. You know, I mean, I might have thought that she would ask a few things about, you know, the book, which is terrific. And who knows what would have happened from there. No, could I just read, I just wanted to read the, my personal favorite line from the okay. book. That's okay. And this is on page 180. You're welcome to it. Following along at home. And this is after he's talked about how there's perverse incentives all over the place. And he says, our current regulatory system is the parent that spoils the child. We buy our sons and daughters a BMW or Ferrari for a D-plus report card and then wonder why they don't work harder for A's. <laughs> I, I just want to celebrate that particular line, which yeah. I thought was spot on in a million thousand ways. There are more questions coming in, so I don't want to interrupt the flow. And if we really run out of things to talk about, um, Sue, <clears throat> you can talk about radiation therapy to the lung for COVID. We're not going to go there. No, not <laughs> up right now. We don't want to talk about parachutes on this podcast, like radiation <laughs> okay. to the lung for COVID. Go back to okay. the questions. They're much better than what I have to say. Keep well, going. that's funny you you raised that quote. Thank you for pointing it out. Um, I guess I think like the poster child of that is Avastin. This is a drug that you know has life cycle sales of maybe $70 billion or more. And, um, you know, wherever it's been tested, it improves overall survival, usually on the order of about one and a half months um, in idealized patients in clinical trials and maybe cervical cancers on the high end of three months. And then a lot of cancers doesn't work at all. Here's a question from Sarah. Is proton therapy the sexy, expensive, targeted therapy of radiation oncology without high level evidence to support it? Well, I hope uh, I hope uh, Dr. Lee from Sloan Kettering is not on this podcast, but um, well, you know, Dr. Lee, that's, oh, well, that's, that's some insider knowledge. <laughs> I, uh, I hope she's not on this pod. Well, I'm sure she she's got better things I taped, to do. I taped it for I taped it for a minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut this clip out, but I guess I'd say uh, you're you're not you might not be wrong. Um, Annie is asking any comments on liquid biopsy testing or TMB. I'm just, just going to say the UK. Yeah. Okay. Let's go yeah. back to the UK and CRUK, which, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of problems with the NHS. Okay. I'll be the first one to say, like, I would, I would have to hear more about the NHS and experience it more to go sign up for healthcare there and move to England. But, um, that aside and the issues with NHS and the fact that they're also privatizing because of their problems, um, the CRUK, which is the clinical trials, uh, arm within the UK has actually set up very meaningful proton trials, real proton trials, true randomization, um, you know, no industry involvement, mostly supported by CRUK with philanthropy. And I actually believe that those trials that come out of the UK in a manner similar to recovery. Yes are going to be what we end up referring to. I see. Which is a hard pill to swallow. Well, I'll be all, I'll, I'm already moving on to carbon, so I'll be I'll be past <laughs> you by then. Well, you got to go ask the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> um, any comments on TMB? So I, I think you guys will be uh, look forward to, I think there will be a pro-con commentary coming in Annals of Oncology. I'm going to be writing that the FDA's approval of TMB was uh, misguided and erroneous. Um, and then I believe um, uh, Vivek Subaya from, from MD Anderson and colleagues are going to be writing that it was a good approval. And so I think it's going to be um, a very interesting thing. I guess the only thing I would say is it's a drug approved on the basis of response rate. And there is sort of a relationship between response rate and TMB. 
If your TMB is less than 10, your response rate in that study was 6.7%. If you were 10 to 12 um, mutations per megabase, it was, I think, 12.5%. 12 to 20 was something, uh, uh, 12 to 20 was something like, um, I don't know, 20.5%. And then above 20, it's a, it's about 40% response rate. And so then the question I have, the philosophical question is either you believe um, we need drugs that improve survival and quality of life, in which case this data is inadequate, or you believe if a drug has a response rate, well, then it's a doctor's duty to offer that to a patient. Maybe that's a potential for benefit. I don't know all the answers. But if you believe that a drug that has a response rate is something we ought to be offering all the time, then why did you restrict your approval to 10 and above? Because people below 10 have a 6.7% response rate, and that ain't zero. So I think that's going to be a philosophical challenge. Um, Ian is asking, is there enough evidence for PBT? What is PBT? To further explore the magnitude of benefit in proton beam therapy. Oh, proton beam therapy in pediatrics. Oh, well, that's uh, that's going to really get me in trouble in this audience. Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah, I think not necessarily. Is my I opinion. think you'd be surprised. No, I mean, really. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, how can I say this? The, the You know, one of the weaknesses slash vulnerabilities of the radiation oncology community is that we do allow a lot of dissent and there's a lot of mixed opinions in the community. Um, and, and we critique ourselves the hardest. It's, it's such a real pain to be a radiation oncologist. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, it's part of the reason I have such admiration for you is that you've long had a tradition of doing really good cooperative group studies. You're powered for overall survival. Um, and you tolerate, uh, dissenting opinions. And that's why, uh, that's why I'm giving the I keynote fear for that system. And I, I truly <laughs> fear for that system. Oh, well, I'm, I'm being really, I'm being really honest and heartfelt right now. I fear for that system over the next five to 10 years, because the fact is that the public doesn't understand it. You know, the, mm. they're talking right now about a, what I think, a what is it? Nine or 11% cut to NCI That's foolish. NIH next year. It's, you know, it's just constant. I mean, we just had a cut. So it's like ongoing issue. COVID-19. Even when you do everything wrong, things go bad anyway. That's going to be the book I'm writing next. Um, Philippe is asking, in the book Malignant, I say imatinib for CML is a good drug, probably one of the few parachutes, any other drugs that are that good. Um, I guess the answer is no. And just to put it in context, like why is imatinib so good? Um, you know, if you looked at, let's say, a hypothetical 55-year-old woman who was diagnosed with CML in 1974, her life expectancy um, with CML is about three to four years, um, but the 55-year-old woman who, if she didn't have CML, her life expectancy would be 22 years, and so that's a that's a you know an 18-year gap in life expectancy, years of life lost. That same woman in 2010, that gap is down to about a year and a half in the Swedish data set. So imatinib is such a transformative drug that it closes a 20-year years of life gap. Let's just pick another example: ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer. We've got a bunch of good drugs, electinib, crizotinib, brigatinib, lorlatinib, you you name it. Uh, the same 55-year-old woman diagnosed with that cancer in 1975 probably would live, she probably wouldn't live the average of a lung cancer patient. She'd probably live a little bit longer, but maybe something like 20, 22 months, maybe a little bit less, maybe 15 months, but certainly not the average because we know that mutation is often a favorably prognostic in and of itself. And what is that person living today? maybe five years on, in, in the best clinical studies, if that's a trial-eligible patient. But that still leaves 15 years of life lost, um, which is the tragedy we don't see. We see, you know, we see the five years full in the glass, and we miss the, you know, the 85% the empty glass. Um, so I think that that puts in perspective, and that's a really great drug. Um, so most of the drugs we have are, you know, I think substantively inferior to imatinib. Hey, can I just mention yeah. one thing? Um, only because we're maybe, but I'm happy to go all night. I mean, it's fine. We can keep going. Oh, we'll be good. Uh, 
some people may consider it an hour as, as reaching an hour, and that's maybe an okay thing. Um, since we were doing all this kind of cross funky cross promotion things like this, I happened to see your Twitter recently that a certain Dr. Bishal Gyawali, who uh, I think is in the audience right now, is he going to be one of your upcoming guests? Oh uh, yes, Bishal, if you feel like going on on na now and just saying anything you feel like, we would certainly always love to hear you. So um, I'm going to unmute you, or maybe Kaylee can unmute you, and if you're still there, if you want to say anything. We would love to hear. And I'll introduce Bishal. <laughs> I mean, I guess Bishal Gaywali is, of course, assistant professor at uh, Queen's University, uh, a practicing medical oncologist, uh, originally from Nepal, who uh, is interested, I think, in regulatory policy, as well as global oncology. He's coming on the podcast in the future to talk about uh, where what, what has become of Twitter. Um, and I think it's going to be a, a fun, <laughs> it's a discussion that he said is going to get him in trouble. So, Bishal, it's great to hear from you. No, it, it has been a pleasure uh, being a part of this uh, live recording of the podcast uh -huh. and uh, to be a fly on the wall in the radiation oncology room. So now for the first time, I'm getting a sense of what it feels like to be, uh, you know, uh, a part of the radiation oncology team. And, and it feels like, you know, we are a bunch of people who are really thoughtful and who care about evidence and uh, I guess that's a selection bias for this webinar, uh, I would assume, but <laughs> yeah, but uh, it really felt uh, good to be a part of this. Uh, uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I, I hope you didn't mind that I exploited you in the beginning to put a plug in for the Astro meeting. Because, but seriously, I like that theme. That I mean, I don't know, Vinay, if that's been on your agenda or if I missed a podcast or two, the Global Oncology theme, which is oh, yeah. just a terrific topic. Um, in, your, in your book, of course, uh, did we mention that his book is uh, malignant? Yes. Okay. In your book, <laughs> one thing we didn't get to here yeah. has to do with the fact that a lot of companies will, I'm going to go ahead and use the word exploit, uh, developing countries for the purpose of using randomized studies against straw man competitors. That's a big part of this book, and I think it's one of the important points. And Vishal, I don't know, uh, that, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you that loaded question and give you five seconds to answer that. I'm sorry, but, but I know but Brian, that's, I have a that's a problem. I have one, I mean, one thing that Bishal could say, speak about uh, that will fit this audience in global oncology. Bishal gave a very excellent lecture uh, at OHSU a couple of years ago. And one of the things he pointed out was um, the difference in radiotherapy's availability in Africa versus for a particular um, group of people, not people, for some particular population in the Northern Hemisphere in the United States. Bishal, you want to tell him that? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was uh, a news I saw in... Uh, BBC, which compared the availability of radiotherapy machines for uh, people in Africa versus cats and dogs in USA. And, uh, you know, there was, uh, I, I can't remember the exact number, but uh, there was one radiotherapy machine for the whole country uh, with 30 to 50 million population. And then there were, uh, you know, almost thousand times higher per capita radiotherapy machine for cats and dogs in the USA. And of course, the, this is this is nothing against cats and dogs, but 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 it's about, you know, how uh, in certain parts of the world, people do not have access to even life saving uh, interventions uh, like radiotherapy and, and surgery. And the the biggest paradox I notice in global oncology is that in these particular corners of the world where you don't have radiotherapy machine, sometimes patients are getting Avastin for the tumors uh, and they are paying out of pocket for that. So this, uh, this is what 
I always mean by cancer ground cert before cancer moon cert. So before we 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 get onto all these, uh, you know, overhyped uh, but low value interventions, the first priority should be to make sure that uh, every people in the world will have access to things that we actually know to work. Uh, and the only thing that we need to do is uh, to know how to implement those rather than, uh, you know, trying. Sometimes you see papers about how to implement precision oncology in Africa. Right. And that reminds me of that uh, news article comparing radiotherapy machines for cats and dogs in the USA versus uh, cancer patients in Africa. And that is really something that, uh, you know, it would not take uh, uh, five or ten moon sorts to, to address that issue, right? It would take one sincere ground sort to address that issue, and, and we could do that. Yeah. And I think that's such a heartbreaking statistic. And I think it really drives home the point um, of the challenges faced in global oncology. So thanks for sharing that, Bishal. No, not at all. Uh, and uh, I'd like to thank Astro for uh, making the theme related to global oncology for this year, because uh, that's quite amazing. And I guess this is the first big oncology meeting that has actually brought the issue of global oncology to the forefront. Uh, I just feel ashamed that none of our medical oncology uh, communities ever thought of making global oncology at the forefront of uh, their annual meeting. Uh, they do have some spin-off meetings, you know, like uh, second tired. We have second tired journals, right, for global mm -hmm. oncology. And similarly, uh, some of our communities do think of global oncology as a second tired uh, research or second tired priority. And we do have some global oncology meetings for, you know, like 100 or 200 participants who are especially who have especially interest in that, but to have the whole actual annual meeting with the theme of global oncology is what we need to make all of us aware about that need. So I'd really like to applaud uh, the Astro community. That's that's really terrific, and yeah, that's great that Astro is is going to be going to be talking about that important theme. And maybe I'll just take a couple more questions. Uh, Annie is asking, the AACR keynote talked about lives lost because of delayed mammography and colonoscopies. It was really hard not to think of arguments from your first book. Anything you want to remind us of? I was like, well, oh, people are trying to get me in trouble. I guess I would say that, um, uh, you know, there are a couple things to note, of course, which is that um, cancer screening trials are primarily published, are primarily powered for cause-specific mortality or death from that cancer. That requires adjudication. It's often very difficult. And they're not typically powered for all-cause mortality or living longer. Um, which is really the measure of lives lost. Um, when it comes to colonoscopy, we actually don't have any randomized trials to date about looking at the full colon. We only have flexible sigmoidoscopy. But fortunately, flexible sigmoidoscopy in meta-analysis does now have a statistically significant overall mortality benefit. FOBT, unfortunately, does not. Um, mammography, however, unfortunately, in the Cochrane analysis and pooled analysis does not have an all-cause mortality benefit. And, uh, and uh, well, we can talk about whether or not this will be the case. But I guess I've seen a number of publications that are going to look at um, whether or not delays from COVID are impacting medical care. And I just want to say, I mean, I would um, be very cautious about modeling. Current models are based on sort of very kind of confounded data sets. I think COVID is for all the faults of COVID, one silver lining will be it'll be a natural experiment to kind of ask these questions rigorously. Um, so we will might we might be able to actually have an answer to that question. I was actually going to ask yeah. you that question, Vinay. Uh, I, I didn't get to ask this question, but okay. I had this already in my head. Has COVID destroyed the medical publishing industry? <laughs> like, what has happened? Like, I, I'm just going to say, as as an editor, um, it, it's it. You know, we've tried to not get crazy, but it's been really concerning. I mean, you, you know, we're just seeing our our sister journals left and right kind of 
flip out. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen a number of high-profile retractions. We've also seen fiascos in the preprint literature as well, uh, including uh, highly publicized preprints that some people criticized of. Um, hydroxychloroquine was pushed in probably one of the greatest public health debacles of, uh, of the last 25 years, um, leading to shortages and things of that nature. Um, and, uh, rhetoric has been skewed. I mean, I think it's going to be um, sort of a, a huge thing to unpack. One, yeah. yeah. My, cons- my concern is like, what kind of damage have we done sort of semi-permanently here? Like, you know, what have we done to the status of peer review um, what have we done to the credibility of journals in general? I mean, there are people now who say to me, well, what's the difference? Let's just preprint. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, how, I, I just wonder, like, after COVID's <clears throat> over, are we going to are we going to all wake up, you know, not drunk anymore and figure that back out? <laughs> or, you know, have we enacted some kind of permanent change and in, in, in dissolving of that scientific process, um, you know, with the expectation that everything should be published tomorrow uh, without rigorous review? And we just throw hypotheses out there and it's a marketplace of ideas. It, 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 it actually keeps me up. I agree with you. I guess I'm a little wor- I, I actually do wonder. Is it is it the case that COVID is worse or is it the case that COVID is just what happens in science on a compressed time frame? Is it just what happens in 20 years of science compressed in six months? And I guess I'll be curious to know. I think we'll do some empirical studies to try to tease those two hypotheses apart. But I think you're 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 absolutely right. I think a lot of us have been frustrated by the pay, by all the fiascos in science. Um Anyway, this podcast is brought to you by Surgisphere. Surgisphere, the best data this side. No. <laughs> um, okay, let's just do the two last. Good la- try. Good <laughs> try. They're out of money. <laughs> let's do two last questions. They're, they're handling all the lawsuits right now. They can't pay us. <laughs> I, I wonder if they are, what they're doing. Their website is down temporarily, of course. Um, Sabine is asking, has medical Twitter improved the criticisms of trial results resign? Or is everyone a COVID expert now? How could Twitter be used as a platform? I think Twitter is showing that... Um, uh, you know, that there are people out there who I think are just spot on um, thoughtful commenters on clinical trials. I've discovered people I didn't even know existed. Um, I think a huge group of clinical trial statisticians have come forward and they are some of the most thoughtful commenters on trials. And so you can go on Twitter and you can definitely find some pearls every day. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you're going to find a lot of garbage too. And a lot of people who um, even are uh, have titles that would make one think uh, that they are um, knowledgeable and experts have uh, proven to be deficient. And so I think uh, Twitter Twitter shows what everyone uh, is really, what everyone's really capable of when it comes to critical trial appraisal. Um, and Anna is asking, in the book you write, doctors on Twitter are more financially conflicted than the average doctor. That's true. Should we state our disclosures or lack thereof as Dr. Gawali has in our Twitter bios? Yeah. I guess I would say when we did this work on Twitter, I, maybe this will be the last question, then we'll take closing comments from from the host. Um, when we did when we did this work on Twitter, one of the things a reporter called me up um, was to say that you know you've shown conflict is rampant among oncologists on Twitter. There's a link between conflict and um, you know promoting certain drug products. Um, do you uh, how do we handle this? And they say you know I don't know if you know this, but celebrities have this rule that if they are being paid by Vitamin Water and they're tweeting photos of them showing Vitamin Water, they'll put hashtag sponsored. And I thought to myself that you know isn't it ironic when doctors have to take uh, ethics lessons from celebrities? And so I do think that, you know, we probably should disclose in our Twitter bios our conflicts. Maybe actually in the book, I, I argue that, you know, we should also try to minimize even having them in the first place. Um, and then we certainly maybe should be cognizant of the fact that, you know, if you're, if you're on the payroll for AstraZeneca, maybe you shouldn't be talking about profound. So let's go through, let's just give, we're going to give the last word to Dr. Yam, and then maybe we'll let Brian take the, the next to last word, and then, and then we'll close. But, uh, you know, I think this was a terrific session. 
Um, and I really appreciate you all putting it together and, and doing it. And thanks so much for, for having me. So thank you. I'll take the second last word so you okay. can close it up. And we are looking forward because we do have the understanding that you're going to talk more about Twitter on your next plenary session. So I look forward to that. And thank you both for fantastic conversation. We could go on for hours, but we can't. So <laughs> <laughs> we do have to call it to close. Uh, but Sue, uh, you can send us on, on home from here. Oh gosh, uh, what to say? That was uh, that was like that was like five cups of coffee at seven p.m. <laughs> um, I'm I'm uh, I'm sort of um, amazed, Vinay, uh, with how much you uh, contribute so rapidly and so prolifically to the conversation. And um, this has just, I think, been a very small example of that. And um, just really want to thank you for for working with me. Well, thank you, and and I'm gonna have to bring you on the podcast and flip the tables on you and and, and, oh, and go through your whole story. <laughs> I'm um, in for it. <laughs> and then the last person we have to thank is we have to thank Kaylee for putting all this together and getting us all organized. Kaylee and, and Brian, amazing and Brian. job, and 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 very very interesting and complicated format, I must say. <laughs> I give you kudos on that. And thanks to the participants, and um, and I think that's a wrap. So uh, stay tuned for the next plenary session. Thank you all for participating. Thank you, everyone. Have a great night. Thank you. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.